Hey there, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Climate Ready Podcast, where we continue to cover the latest stories, trends, and perspectives on international climate issues. This is your host for the episode, Alex Maroner, from the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. Before we begin, I wanted to thank all of you for joining us as we make our way through the first season of this podcast. The feedback's been great so far. Don't forget that you can send us comments through our website and leave us reviews on iTunes. So for this episode, I wanted to start by asking a question. How many of you know what the future holds? Since I think I know the answer, I guess it's okay that I can't see a show of hands. It's none of us, right? None of us can accurately predict the future. And if that's the case, how do we reconcile that with the fact that we are rapidly building new infrastructure even though we can't predict the conditions under which they'll operate? How do we determine whether or not the investments we're making today will be resilient to whatever the future holds, climate or otherwise? In short, how do we change uncertainty into confident decisions? Instead of being paralyzed with fear, and instead of blazing forward with often incorrect assumptions about the future, let's start by identifying the problem. Let's flip the standard decision-making process on its head as we develop new infrastructure. Instead of defining a need and then asking what the future will look like, let's start by defining the problem at hand and evaluate the variables that matter for that particular project. Regardless of what the future might look like, let's ask, what is the system vulnerable to? What are the risks? From there, we can define what success looks like and plan accordingly. That idea is at the heart of a new paradigm in climate adaptation decision-making collectively referred to as bottom-up approaches. That brings us to our episode today, where we're joined by Dr. Patrick Ray of the University of Cincinnati. He and I will spend some time talking about a new framework developed by the World Bank to assess resilience or robustness of climate projects to uncertain futures. You'll want to hear about the interesting work they've been doing in Mexico City and elsewhere, as well as the ways you can use this free and open source tool. Stay tuned. Climate Ready Podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an informal international network of water and climate professionals working to develop, enable, and mainstream climate change adaptation and mitigation practices within water resources management, decision-making processes, policies, and implementation. The Climate Ready Podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Dr. Patrick Ray, an assistant professor of chemical and environmental engineering at the University of Cincinnati and a member of the Hydro Systems Research Group at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He specializes in climate risk management for the water sector and sustainable management of water resources. Patrick's research includes methods for decision making under uncertainty, among other topics. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Hey, thanks, Alex. Thrilled to be here. So Patrick, in this episode, we wanted to spend some time talking about new ways to assess and address climate risk. Water managers and decision makers have been analyzing their systems and conducting stress tests using the same methods for decades now. But conditions are changing, and in particular those related to climate and water, though there are many other areas of uncertainty as well. Over the last 10 plus years, there's been a feeling that maybe something isn't working and there could be a better way to go about analyzing risk and addressing uncertainty. 
That's led to this push to come up with a new paradigm for water management planning, which we refer to as bottom-up approaches. Could you tell us more about this and maybe contrast this approach with more traditional ones? Sure. Um, yeah, bottom-up is sort of a philosophy, isn't it? It's a, um, it's a perspective on problem-solving. And I think the magic word for bottom-up is relevance. So we really want to be relevant to the problem. Um, bottom-up is not exactly an engineering or um, climate change term. It's really, it's about decision science, right? It's about management science. It's about where the information um, should best come from to solve a problem. So bottom-up is about being problem-oriented and relevant to um, some kind of a decision that needs to be made. And in the um, managerial sense or the, the political sense, the government sense, a top-down decision is something imposed upon us at the bottom um, by decision makers at the top who have some sort of a sense um, of some thing that has worked somewhere else um, that they want us to do uh, in our lives, right? Some way that they want us to behave or something they want us to do. Um, similarly, in uh, climate change adaptation, there is a, a sort of science-based macro scale idea that worked somewhere. Um, maybe it's a climate change projection that worked somewhere or an adaptation strategy that worked somewhere. It's some sort of information that is general. And what we do with top-down is try to apply a general notion um, to, a, to a problem at hand. Um, and what we, uh, what we practitioners of bottom-up um, adaptation approaches uh, believe is that that's not efficient. And in, in fact, it, it doesn't even work very well very often. So we begin with the problem. That's what we do is, is sort of invert um, typical, uh, and this is the conventional way to do this, to begin with some kind of a big idea that uh, is generalizable or generalized already, and then try to make it fit the problem at hand. So we don't do that. We start with the problem at hand. We describe very carefully the parameters of the problem at hand, and then we try to find um, solutions that work for that problem. Patrick has been leading a multi-year project with the World Bank to create a decision tree framework for screening investments to assess the resilience to climate risks. This decision tree framework is an innovative tool to tackle long-term climate uncertainty in water projects. I asked Patrick to explain the need for this tool and the rationale for developing it. The way it was done in the late 90s through much of the 2000s was this top-down approach. And uh, the World Bank came to decide by approximately 2010 that that, um, that produces interesting science, right? What it essentially means is we say, well, if we had this global change, and let's say the global change was it's warmer, or the global change was, um, you know, there's a hydrologic, uh, the hydrologic cycle is speeding up. And so we have um, a more radical rainy season, a sort of more intense rainy season or something, a longer drought, this kind of stuff, global ideas of change. Um, if we had that happen, how would it affect this project that we, the World Bank, I'm speaking as if I am the World Bank, though of course I'm not, um, that we are um, investing in? So if the World Bank is investing in, let's say, a $300 million dam, and that dam is going to be around a long time. It's going to be around 30, 50, 100 years, let's hope. Then what they need to know is, will that dam perform? At the end of the day, they're performing a benefit cost analysis. They know the costs. It's $300 million to build a dam. Will the benefits that are reaped um, justify 
that investment. And in order to figure that out, you have to forecast way into the future. You have to sort of assume what the future operating conditions will be of that dam. Let's pretend it's multi-purpose and that um, it will do things like provide water supply um, to uh, households, it will irrigate farms, it will produce hydropower, and on and on. Um, and each one of those things we estimate um, in terms of the quantity of water, and we translate that into dollars um, of, uh, of crops produced or hydropower produced or something like that for a long time frame. So what the top-down approaches did is said, okay, now superimpose onto those estimates of future performance of your system a changed world. Say, well, if the world is different, then um, you know we'll get different performance. And so they were very interested in that stuff, and they they sponsored a lot of studies to that end. But but by this by the time they wrote the 2012 independent evaluation group uh, product report about all this, what they came to believe is that that information was much more useful for science, for interesting scientific evaluations, than it was for actually informing decisions. In the process, I think. Um, Casey Brown, of course, was involved in this quite a bit, and, and many others. Um, Robert Willoughby and, and, and a number of great uh, thinkers were solicited by the World Bank in kind of reviewing this convention, this conventional approach to climate change risk assessment. And, and by the time I became involved in all this in about uh, 2013, um, they had already decided that they wanted to do bottom-up risk assessment projects, risk assessment studies. And so I was hired to, to begin to sketch out how those studies could be done. What types of practitioners or stakeholders do you hope to reach with this framework? You know, we have policymakers in play, we have engineers, we have the investors, we have the climate scientists. There's a lot of people involved. So who, who are the people that uh, you're trying to reach with this decision tree framework? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't have a... Um... I don't have a prepackaged answer to that question, um, but I, I think I'll keep in the same vein um, with what we've been talking about so far, because uh, I'm excited about this stuff, um, which is that I really am motivated to see um, planet Earth make really good uh, decisions about um, water infrastructure going far into the future. I've got children, and I want those children to have great water infrastructure. And I hope to someday have grandchildren, and I want them to have really good water infrastructure. Um, and, and I want um, all those out there. So I guess the answer to the question is, um, is investors, you know, builders, those, those who are making, who are building water infrastructure and making water policies. Um, huge amounts of money have to be spent and just are spent all the time, you know, building a pipeline, building a dam, building a treatment plant, or maintaining all that stuff. We're talking about just millions and millions and millions of dollars all the time, are we spending it well? You know, there's, there's the near-term problems we're trying to solve, which is maybe patching holes in the system or maintaining something or building something that we, we need right now. And then there's the bigger picture questions. What are we planning for? Now that we've heard more about the philosophy behind the decision tree framework, I'm wondering if you could maybe give us a little context or describe a situation where this approach would be best applied. You know, part of why I love my job is because it really gets me involved in interesting stuff, stuff that's fun to talk about. Here's a couple quick examples that, that fit in with what we're discussing. One is Mexico City, right? We're working with the World Bank and the Rockefeller Foundation in Mexico City trying to evaluate um, uh, potential improvements to their water situation now, which is 
quite frankly, um, kind of disastrous and scary. It's a scary water situation. Their water situation is um, that they don't have enough water to import to the city from outside the city. And so they're sucking all the water out of their local aquifer and they're sucking it out so fast. And this is a universal problem. They're sucking the water out of the local aquifer so fast that they've got tons of land subsidence. Land subsidence is so radical that in some places they have nine meters of land subsidence. Um, outrageous, right? And so you can imagine what that does to people trying to operate the local infrastructure. It means all their pipes are breaking, their roads are cracking, they're, you know, it's a total nightmare, right? So we're thinking about how to help Mexico City make investments and, and make some sort of an investment plan with them, you know? But let me tell you something so fun. I mean, it's not fun. It's, um, it's interesting. <laughs> There's a difference between fun and it's fun for me because um, I'm not affected exactly. The Aztecs, four to 500 years ago, they founded their city, Tenochtitlan, in the middle of um, a lake, right? And, and so immediately they, they realized they had to deal with flooding. So they start putting in drainage systems. The, um, and, the, and they're doing wonderful drainage stuff, the Aztecs were. And then we've got the, the Spanish conquistadores come in and they take over. And they're running this place for hundreds of years. And what are they doing? They're dealing with floods. They're really frustrated about all their flood problems. So they put in all these measures to get rid of the water. And you know what they did wonderfully? Um, congratulations to them. By about 1900, they solved the flood problem. They put in amazing drainage systems. And now when it rains in the bowl on the top of a mountain that is Mexico City, it drains pretty quick. So they've solved their flood problem and in the process, unfortunately, created this terrible drought problem that they now have. That means that when it rains, instead of the water really recharging that local aquifer effectively, it drains out really fast to the north. And, and so their aquifer is sinking, right? So this is a perfect example. It's a case study in um, trying to solve a problem urgently right now and not having the ability. And let's not blame the Aztecs or conquistadores too much for this. They, they did what they dealt with the problem at hand. But what we want to do is we want to do better than that. We don't want to solve a drought problem by making a flood problem or solve a flood problem by making a drought problem. We want to, um, and this is what these bottom-up techniques are really doing. They're, so maybe there's two phrases. One is bottom-up and the other one is robustness-based. And robustness-based is um, a really important part of this. We, we shouldn't overemphasize the bottom-up part at the expense of the robustness-based part. Robustness-based means we don't know what the future holds. This is the wonderful bit here. We're not planning for some expected future. We don't know what's gonna happen in the future. That's the problem with the top-down techniques is it imposes a future onto your planning and you plan for that future, that's top-down. Bottom-up robustness-based means we have this project, we will expose the project or, or subject it to all kinds of possible futures. And we'll say, how do we make this project um, one word is resilient or robust or whatever um, exactly we, we mean. Um, how do we make it perform acceptably well? And the project, by the way, might be Mexico City's um, water system. You know, it's a big project. And, and, and so we don't know if the future is going to be drier or wetter. We don't know what, what the human, it's not just climate either, right? Of course, it's, we don't know how many millions of people are going to come to or leave Mexico City. How do we make a water system that is kind of, um, you know, as flexible and adaptable and robust as possible, um, given that we don't know what the future will hold? And that's, that's really inspiring to me. It gets me excited. It's a really interesting story, um, you know, each of these cases. And I think that there's a lot of promise for this 
decision tree framework. From what I understand, one of the strengths of the decision tree framework is that it can be applied in developing as well as more developed countries. It's because it's not particularly limited to uh, resource or data rich context. What was the rationale behind this? And how did you make sure that the decision tree framework could be so broadly ap applicable? Well, at heart, it's easy for me to just say the World Bank was paying for it. And so they uh, don't work in data rich, wealthy countries. They work only really in, they don't work in Europe, they don't work in the United States. You know, we're working in Sub-Saharan Africa, we're working in South Asia, we're working in uh, Mexico City, you know, places that have data challenges. Um, that's where the World Bank works. And so that's why the thing is made that way, really. But uh, commenting on the bigger point about the philosophy behind designing it this way, and if it's relevant in data scarce places, it's probably also relevant in data rich places. The inverse might not be true, but, but it comes down to being problem centered. You know, it comes down to the urgency, the requirement of making a decision. And so the decision tree had to be developed in such a way that a decision can be made. Um, however much information you have, you've got to make a decision. And so the World Bank is, it's aimed um, unapologetically at the decision, at the project, at not the science. The interest isn't um, making gorgeous science. The interest is making a decision that is as good a decision as can be made under the circumstances. The decision tree is an embrace of uncertainty. Um, we run lots of scenarios, we evaluate lots of possibilities, and we try to factor them all in. And it's sort of maybe in that sense, that's why it's effective is that um, it, it really, uh, it's, it's built for the very condition under which you don't know what's happening. So it's applicable and relevant to these more data scarce regions where the World Bank operates at the same time, and this isn't necessarily a coincidence, these are the very same places where there's the most development, the most new infrastructure going up. It's not like there are tons of new dams being built in the US or Western Europe, but if you look at places like Southeast Asia, for instance, there are hundreds of new dams in development. In that sense, it's really vital to have this framework be applicable to those very regions. That's right, yeah. As part of the development of the Decision Tree Framework, you all conducted a number of pilot demonstration projects, several of which are ongoing. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing on the ground? The Decision Tree pilots occurred um, in uh, Nepal. That's a hydropower project. Um, in Kenya, that's uh, by... Um, Mombasa, there's a multipurpose reservoir being built there, and we want to make sure that it's well built. Um, and Mexico City, these are all different. It's fascinating. You know, so we got a hydropower project, we got multipurpose reservoir, which is largely water supply and and um, and agricultural irrigation. And then in Mexico City, we have urban planning, and that's a cascade of reservoirs that are designed for um, urban water supply. And there's just half the story. It's Kutsamala Basin, and then the other part of the story is um, Mexico City itself, and how do we organize the Mexico City water system well enough uh, that uh, we're being highly efficient with the water that we're bringing in from Kutsamala and a couple other places. Um, and we've got a couple projects in Indonesia, which are uh, like pumped storage um, hydropower, which are very interesting, and the, and the concern there is much more about floods. Uh, so those are really flood case studies um, that worries about damage to the infrastructure from big sudden rain events in Indonesia. You know, it's all it's all well and good to create this uh, this decision tree framework and and pilot it in a in a few places. But 
ultimately you wanted to kind of expand and go um, beyond just the World Bank. So you've begun some training in the past year, from what I understand. Could you tell us a little bit about the training that you all have been doing uh, with some of the practitioners? Maybe what types of materials are you presenting? To whom? Where has this taken place? At the end of the day, what we want is to empower people who have to make decisions to make good ones. And so a huge part of this project, I I mentioned the book, you know, the book was part of the project. The pilot demonstrations are part of the project and training is part of the project. It was part of the project from the beginning. The idea is that, again, we, we really just want to empower good decisions. And so we want to train people, build their capacity to make good decisions. Um, It started at the world bank so that we, we do one day trainings at the world bank which is just to help um, the technical team leaders, the project managers at the bank to use these uh, tools and and almost really just to use these perspectives and these philosophies um, because they don't tend to do the technical stuff themselves. They tend to hire people to do the technical stuff, but they have to tell the technical people what to do. And so we've we've taught them the ideas behind the framework. That's the one day training. Um, That's a pretty highly conceptual training, explaining why we do it the way we do and helping them to, um, to, you know, questions of paradigm. Then there are longer versions of the training. Um, The longest version we've done is four days. We've done two-day trainings. I even did a three-day training, but four-day training is where we gather together mostly engineers, engineers and analysts that would really be the ones doing this. And we actually show them the computer code um, for how to do it. And we have them use the computer code um, for bottom-up risk assessment. And by the end of those four days, they produce their own climate change response surface. Um, and maybe even they produce their own multidimensional response surface if they're really quick. Um, but that's the idea there, is, is to train analysts and engineers around the world who are probably working for their utility. They now have the, the technical capacity to do it themselves. They can email us and and ask us advice, but mostly they're really running the codes themselves. And we hand them everything. So this is one of the fun things about working with the World Bank is that the uh, the World Bank requires that everything be open and free and shareable. And so uh, that's what we do. Um, and that's the dream there is that, you know, apart from asking us for some advice about complicated um, problems, they can actually come kind of close to doing this themselves by the end of those four days. Here's a bit of an opportunity, I guess, for for free promotion. How can people find out more uh, and learn how to use this framework in their water management projects? Right. I mean, I'd say the first thing to do is download the book from the World Bank website, from the Open Knowledge Platform. It's right there. You can Google Confronting Climate Change Decision Tree, and it should pop up. And as they're looking through it, imagine there's a case study in there of a hydropower project in sub-Saharan Africa, and imagine themselves doing it. And if they Uh, whoever's reading the book actually wants to try it, they're welcome to email me. (laughs) They can find me at the University of Cincinnati, Google me at the University of Cincinnati or Casey at the University of Massachusetts and ask us for the codes and and we would just email them. Well, that's that's all I had for today. If there's, um, you know, anything else you want to add, uh, feel free. That's wonderful, Alex. I've really enjoyed it. These are great questions and I I love what you're doing with with Agua and I I think this is um, a really important thing. So thanks for allowing me to participate. Hey everyone, thanks for sticking with us. I'd like to again thank our guest, Dr. Patrick Ray, for joining us today. You should definitely check out the World Bank's website to find out more on the Decision Tree Framework. 
Links are provided in the episode description. They've got some great open source resources available. I wanted to close with a few quick thoughts based on what we heard from Patrick. It seems to me that all of his work with the decision tree framework started with the simple idea. We can no longer look to the past to predict the future. Our water management systems have long been designed and operated under the assumption of stationarity, this idea that natural systems fluctuate within an unchanging envelope of variability. But, to borrow a phrase from Paul Millian colleagues, stationarity is dead. And if this is true, we've got to come up with a better way to appropriately assess climate risks for these expensive and long-lived pieces of water infrastructure. We've got to embrace uncertainty and face it head-on, incorporating those scary challenges directly into the planning and design process. In this relatively new field of work, it's important to have tools at our disposal, like those mentioned today, if we want to plan for a water-wise world. That's all for this episode, listeners. Thanks again for joining us on the Climate Ready Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or listen to us by visiting our website, www.aguaguide.org slash climate ready. That's A-G-W-A guide.org slash climate ready. While you're on our site, don't forget to submit your questions and comments for upcoming interviews. Until next time. The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner.